0: hello what's your point
1: you know i would be remiss if i didn't mention garnett the important role that you're playing on wpkn in not simply independent journalism but making sure voices get out the reality is that as we talk about social media and, and collectivism and hashtags, conversation like deep dialogue about these issues is really what we're going to need if we're going to ever get to that point of reimagination. So I just wanted to to thank you. You know, we've got to live for the revolution, um, and that revolution really is has to to be one that allows us to to conquer these inequalities and move forward as,
2: as as a nation as a whole, but also as a community united.
0: Okay, thank you so much. believe dialogue is very important for the continuation and maintenance of a democracy. One should be tolerant of all these different yours. It is much better to use words to settle differences than with weapons. You see, weapons destroy human beings. When all these differing views are put together, a consensus should be found to move the nation forward together for one common cause. At the end of an argument, we may disagree but not become disagreeable. With WPKN radio. The show is What's Your Point? aired fortnightly on Sunday between 9 a.m. and 10 a.m. Eastern Time. And uh, my thought for today goes as follows The political lesson of Watergate is this Never again must America allow an arrogant elite guard of political adolescence to bypass the regular party organization and dictate the terms of a national election Gerald Ford the 38th president of the United States August 1974 to January 1977 those who have ears to hear let them hear And I'll just repeat for emphasis. The political lesson of Watergate is this. Never again must America allow an arrogant elite guard of political adolescents to bypass the regular party organization and dictate the terms of a national election. Gerald Ford former president of the United States. And uh, uh, this uh, morning, I'll um, replay a conversation I had with a Professor Uhuru Williams. Uh, the title of the talk, The Marginalization of Black Americans, Myth or Reality. Uh, Dr. Uhuru Williams wears many hats, among them author of several books and writer of many scholarly journals. Dr. Johor Williams is a distinguished university chair and professor of history and founding director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas, St. Paul, Minnesota. Hello. Good morning. How
1: are you? How are you going
0: to uh, I'm, I'm doing fine. Doing fine. Yeah. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. I'm good. Good to be with you this morning.
0: Okay, thanks. And... uh you know, I want to really look to this morning uh, at the the marginalization of uh, black Americans, uh, whether it's a uh, myth or reality. And uh, first of all, what is racism? What is in your definition of this is racism?
1: It's an interesting question because, you know, there's the standard definition of racism, which would be um, prejudice or discrimination aimed at a particular group, Uh, based on um, racial characteristics in which that group is denied um, opportunity systematically uh, uh, through what we would consider to be um, economic, social, or political influence. So in the case of African Americans here in the United States, due to the legacy of slavery and then Jim Crow segregation, the denial of basic civil rights associated with citizenship, and then also job discrimination and uh, Uh, denial of access to places of public accommodation, to that kind of systematic uh, inequality and and prejudice, uh, deeply ingrained prejudice, that has power behind it to back it up, um, is what distinguishes racism from just good old uh, fashion garden variety prejudice, which is simply a dislike of a different race uh, for whatever reason.
0: So you're saying that a black person cannot be a racist?
1: Uh, Black people can certainly be prejudiced. Blacks who are empowered certainly can be discriminatory, And if they have power, say, if I own a company and I I don't or deny uh, people of other groups, ethnic groups or other races, opportunity, then certainly I can practice discrimination. But as a whole, when we're talking about structural inequality here in the United States and we're talking about racism. uh, Blacks don't exercise power to that degree, nor do they have that level of influence for, for us to typically talk about that in that context. So, yes, blacks can be prejudiced, certainly, but racism in and of itself in this country is something that is. Is, is intimately tied to white privilege because of the legacy of slavery uh, and Jim Crow segregation.
0: So you're saying that racism in other parts of the world could be different in its uh, its uh, definition?
1: Absolutely. I mean, we can look at, uh, for example, Japanese xenophobia in some degree, uh, to, start, to a certain extent was racist uh, in the way that it viewed, or, or the way they viewed Jap- uh, the Japanese as the superior race. Um, So again, you know, in different contexts, the the term can be applied differently uh, to address um, — there's conflict right now in Haiti between Mm -hmm. — or or, sorry, the Dominican Republic, Mm -hmm. uh, between uh, light-skinned and uh, dark-skinned Dominicans. Mm -hmm. That um, some people would see as racism, right? Those in power who are using that power to deny uh, access or opportunity to those who are of a different, different hue certainly in india we could talk about the dalit system the dalit and the uh, uh the hierarchy that exists there is racism so yes um, definitely in other parts of the world uh the definition um could be applied differently but typically at the bottom what you find are dark-skinned people
0: mm-hmm. and what took place under apartheid in south africa would be also referred to as racism
1: absolutely i mean and in, in, in south africa is a is a great case study, because ultimately what you see there is colonization, uh, things that the um, at the turn of the century people like Marcus Garvey talked about, where mm-hmm. he commented on the fact that in the United States you had uh, slavery and racism and Jim Crow segregation, but on the world stage, as a result of colonization, you also had racism, uh, alien political um, control and disfranchisement and then economic exploitation and all that came out of European colonization. Mm-hmm. So basically you have the spread of racism as a global phenomenon as a result of colonization mm-hmm. and, uh, and and imperialism.
0: So so there are such things as economic and psychological racism, would you say?
1: Uh there are such things as yeah, definitely economic exploitation that is tied to racism. And what in the 1960s people like Kwame Torre and Angela Davis would mm-hmm. describe as the colonization of the mind, of mm-hmm. uh, the fact that there is a psychological component that goes along with being denied uh, your economic, being denied political rights in this country, and it manifests itself in what we would call, or what we probably describe as um, psychological racism, or you know the internalization of this sense of inferiority that movements like the Black Power Movement in this country meant to address organizations like the Black Panther Party, uh, Ron Karenga's US organization. Um, that's part of what they were trying to do, was to decolonize, to free the mind, to reassert that black was beautiful. Music by people like Nina Simone, the poetry of Amiri Baraka, mm-hmm. all of that was intended in some sense to restore among people of African descent a sense of pride um, in their history, in their culture, um, and in the community as a whole.
0: Uh, speaking uh, live on the telephone with uh, uh, Dr. Wuru Williams, Professor of History. Professor Williams is on the telephone. And uh, Okay, uh, Professor Williams, is racism illegal in the United States?
1: Racism is illegal in the United States in the sense that we have laws in place, by, uh, especially um, by virtue of the Civil Rights Act of nineteen fifty four that make the practice of discrimination illegal by public actors. Um, so, if a corporation today has discriminatory hiring practices, they can be brought up um, and investigated as a result of that. If you can identify system, uh, systematic discrimination in um, the application of, of federal funding, that can be um, investigated. If you can, again, determine ways in which, uh, private actors or public actors are engaged in activities that perpetuate inequality and discrimination. Those are actionable. Uh The real difficult thing to deal with has always been number one, documenting that. Mm -hmm. And then number two, uh, dealing with the fact that even though it's actionable, private actors exercise a great deal of, of control in the way that they mask that activity. So, Something that a person of color may look at and say, well, this is clearly racist, uh, can be interpreted by the courts not to be racist, can be interpreted by the actors, not to be um, itself discriminatory. And it really takes the, uh, <clears throat> your ability, or a person's ability, to track over time discriminatory behavior to really make a strong case that, in fact, this is discrimination, it is a violation of the law.
0: Uh uh-huh. Though the United States has a black president for the first time in its history, Would you agree that white supremacists still exist here in the country?
1: Absolutely. I think if we look at the last two years in particular, in in fact, I think a good measure would be to go back to the Trayvon Martin case Mm -hmm. and the jury nullification that took place in, in that particular case that came along with a ruling by the Roberts Court in Shelby County. Uh, versus Holder, where you have the United States Supreme prim- Court invalidating large sections of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and many people at the time—and I agree with this—identified what they saw as a uh, effort to really roll black- back the clock on gains that have been made by African Americans by people of color since the Civil Rights Era. And you can trace that directly to the election of Barack Obama in 2008. Mm-hmm. It's not to blame Obama, mm-hmm. but it is to say that in some sense. Obama focused a lot of the anger, resentment, and negativity uh, that exists in this country around issues of race, particularly toward African Americans, in a way that has manifested itself in the last four years, uh, actually the last uh, almost eight years since Mm -hmm. Obama's been in office, Mm -hmm. in ways that have been horrific, not just in the courts in terms of Shelby County versus Holder, but as evidenced by the shooting last week in South Carolina where You know, this young man, Dylan Roof, walks into a church and kills nine people Mm -hmm. and basically goes on a racist rant on his website talking about, you know, blacks are taking over the country and Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. So certainly, since Obama's election, we've seen a spike in this type of activity. At the same time, these things have always been, um, and African Americans have always complained about this, there was just, you know, uh, no way to really document it, and the Obama administration having a black president has made it much more pronounced mm-hmm. in the public mm-hmm. consciousness about what this is and how to name it and identify
0: it. Yes. So in a Trevor Martin case, um, would you say that the stand your going law in places like Florida, which this uh, murder took place, have something to do with killings like those? Yeah, absolutely. If, if
1: we look at the uh, history and legacy of the—I'm the, sorry, if we look at the history and the origins— of the Your ground law in Florida Mm -hmm. that ultimately helped to um, facilitate the uh, not uh, or the the acquittal of uh, George Zimmerman and the killing of Trayvon Martin. It is a law that basically uh, privileges uh, a person's right to own firearms and to um, invoke the Castle doctrine, no duty to retreat Mm -hmm. in confrontations with with, um, other persons. Now the other person doesn't necessarily have to be armed in this country. Because there's such a pronounced fear of black people, black males in particular, but black people overall, um, that underground ground, those underground ground laws, that castle doctrine, has resulted in some pretty horrific um, incidents. The Trayvon Martin case just being one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw another one where a bunch of uh, teenagers were, were shot by gentlemen because they were playing loud music. Um, you see it in uh, cases like Ferguson, Missouri, mm-hmm. even though that was a duly deputized officer of the law that shot Michael Brown, yeah. ultimately invoking the idea of no duty to retreat when there were obviously other ways that he may have been able to subdue Michael Brown. So yes, this is those laws are a, are a major problem. They certainly contribute in many of the cases that we've seen over the last two, three years.
0: So um, I know it, it might be a very difficult thing to, to tackle to tackle and to win. So how can white supremacy be successfully dealt with in this country? What is going to take for that to go away? It's a,
1: it's a very difficult, difficult question, Barnett, because it, it deals with us having to address the issue of white privilege. And the problem with white privilege is that everyone is able to in some sense see the evil inherent in something like the Charleston shooting and to rally around the idea that this ultimately is not uh, healthy for American democracy and that, you know, we should uh, show grief and be concerned about this type of racial violence. But it's the microaggression. It is the larger societal issues where we have grinding poverty in this country which has a shade, which has a color that people don't want to address, that we really need to get at if we're going to ultimately vanquish white supremacy. The fact that the unemployment rate in the African American community is nearly three times that of white Americans and nothing's been done about that is a major problem. The fact that you have record homicides in the African American community, Mm -hmm. no one wants to talk about the proliferation of of guns or the informal economy, the drug trade that contributes to that is a problem. The fact that our response to that, has been increasing in policing, turning, uh, black communities into what the Black Panther Party in the 1960s, but certainly others today have suggested, um, are basically militarized zones where you have police officers who look more like they're occupying territory in a foreign country than an American city. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, the reason that white supremacy has been allowed to flourish is that we haven't dealt with the underlying issues, the structural inequalities that help to make it so. And we have people in power, white liberals, um, and in certain cases, uh, people like the president himself who neo liberals, who don't want to or unable to see or unwilling to tackle the deeper issues necessary in order to move us forward as a society.
0: Yes, but also if he has, if he, he tries, he tried the gun law thing when um, the, the, the horrible killings took place in uh, Sandy Hook and. Uh, the, the Congress didn't budge because it's controlled by his opposition. So how do you counter that kind of situation when the presidential powers are not as strong as other parts of the world?
1: Yeah, and, and to Oba- you know, in, in Obama's defense, he also uh, dealt with a, a tremendous amount of disrespect for the executive office of the mm-hmm. president that really is hamstrung his administration. But to your larger question, um, this is a problem that is deeply ingrained in the power of the National Rifle Association, the gun lobby in the country, the fact that they rally around the Second Amendment, even though they're offering a very limited reading of an amendment, whose intent, when it was framed, was basically to deal with a society where there were no police forces, mm-hmm. where people were at the mercy of, and in some sense uh, uh, concerned about hostile natives, about uh, the British uh, government, so on and so forth, those conditions don't exist, mm-hmm. for us to have laws in this country that make it possible for people to have access to the weapons of war, mm-hmm. um, where literally their, their sole purpose is for killing human beings. It's not like we're talking about hunting rifles. Here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about, you know, uh, like the, the weapon that was used in the killings in the, the Denver Theater a couple of years ago during the screening of the Batman film, literally the weapons of war on the streets of American cities in Bridgeport uh, two weeks ago. There were a group of people who were shot up uh, in the terrace, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, again, by people using automatic weapons. Mm -hmm. This is unacceptable in a democracy, and yet our politicians seem unwilling and unable to deal with these issues in a way that show any deep respect for the the larger foundational uh, principles that we associate with American democracy, which are articulated by Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, but life first. Mm -hmm. That means rooting out gun violence.
0: Yeah, so we're uh, speaking here with uh, Dr. Uhuru Williams, Professor of History. And you're in touch with uh, What's Your Point right here on WPK and 89.5 FM. And, uh, at the time when the United States Constitution was written, uh, Dr. Williams, black people were seen as property of the white man and less than human. Wouldn't you say that that's where racial problems started? Absolutely. The racial
1: problems actually are brought to this country by Europeans who have long-standing contact with Africa, who are in search of a um, cheap and dependable source of labor, who go to Africa as the source for that cheap and dependable source of labor and construct laws and create um, systems that allow them to exploit that labor by uh, classifying those individuals as less than human. And so, really, when it develops here, what the United States government does, what the the founding founders do here, is to codify in law this long-standing practice of already seeing Africans as other, as as kind of the outsiders. Mm -hmm. What happens in the United States is it takes on this very perverse form, in the sense that what you get is a two-tiered system, where you have whites on the top and, and blacks on the bottom, and it becomes the basis for a way of life, which by the time we get to the Civil War era, you've got 11 states in the Confederacy willing to secede because they recognize that slavery is literally the lifeblood, not just economically of of those states, but also it's the engine that gives people a sense of their identity. There's a great book by Jason Sokol called uh, There Goes My Everything, Life, Southerners, in the Age of Jim Crow. And one of the things that Sokol argues about 1945 that was certainly true of 1860 is that whites didn't see a loss in economic status. They saw a loss in social status, social standing, political standing. And one could argue that that's what we're seeing today. When you have a black president and a Latina in the United States Supreme Court, you get the response that you get from some people like Dylan uh, Roof, mm-hmm. like the two boys that shot up Columbine High School, where they mm-hmm. say, wait a minute, um, that black person, that Latina, that Latino is taking my spot. They're Mm -hmm. teaching what's rightfully mine. And the response then is not to view this as a meritocracy, which of course discerns it, but to view these people as interlopers and then to engage in acts of violence or acts of obstruction to try to deny to those people of color access to those things. So there's a long-standing problem with very deep historical roots in this country. And I think Charleston is one of these moments where we're forced to confront our history and say, why haven't we grown on this issue? Mm -hmm. And it is because white privilege and white supremacy are so much bound up So
0: so clearly, this uh, country was built on slavery, contrary to what many would want people to believe. Uh, Yes,
1: it is. It is born on the foundations of slavery. It is rooted in inequality. There's no escape for it. In fact, the irony is there is uh, what Edmund Morgan called the paradox of American slavery and American freedom. Mm -hmm. Why can Jefferson and the founders wax so eloquently about the meaning of liberty? It's because every day they look out their windows and they know what inequality looks like because they're holding Africans in human bondage. What makes them so articulate, so powerful, and the way that they're able to talk about the, the, the beauty and importance of liberty is because they know what slavery looks like. They're enslaving people. And yet it doesn't motivate them to want to free their slaves, but to create a system where their privileges are even more protected and the rights of the slaves themselves are, are denied, but the, the language itself, the fact that they, they put that in the founding document, that aspirational language, is what has driven and compelled people of color to contend for liberty in their country and to do so successfully because we're able to appeal to the fact that, hey, wait a minute, this is what you said in your Declaration of Independence. This is what you said in the Constitution. Or simply arguing for um, the full uh, application of those ideas as expressed because that's what it means to be an American. So when I ask you for anything, no, people sometimes get uh, sidetracked in discussions about affirmative action and other things, but ultimately, at the end of the day, what African Americans and other people of color have always asked for is send them their right to enjoy citizenship free of any constructs that deny them the same rights as anyone else. Uh, and, and that, again, is the foundation of American uh, democracy.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, going forward, what will it take for black people to be treated equally? Would it take, say, Political revolution, the way uh, Congress people and uh, the senators are voted into office, and people of color, black people, would want to choose people who are going to be looking after their own self interest? We, we do. It's, a,
1: it's a, again, a very difficult question, Garnett, because we have a situation here where, quite frankly, a lot of times when we think about this issue, we tend to think about it in terms of black political power. And we think about electing African Americans to high office. We've had black senators, congressmen, governors, uh, even an African American president. But mm-hmm. what we've learned in the process is that black faces in high places isn't necessarily the solution to the problem alone. In a community like Ferguson, the reason why that's important is that we can look there and say, look, you've got a white mayor, police force that's only almost 98% white, and an African American population that's a, a, a majority here. Why does this exist? Are there structural inequalities that create uh, this goal that denies African Americans the right to have or elect politicians who be responsive to them? At the same time, we have to be wary of the idea that just because we elect people of color, that means there are going to be major shifts in the economic, social, and political structure. We need, in some sense, a social revolution that addresses those inequalities, even as we talk about ensuring that our democratic processes work. I think the best example of that recently is what happened in baltimore Mm -hmm. we have a prosecutor and a mayor who are african-american who immediately recognized in the violence that was taking place in the streets in baltimore an opportunity moment to demonstrate to their constituents that at the end of the day while they decried the violence they felt the responsibility and need to deal with it in a way that will create reconciliation and so you immediately got charges against the officers um implicated in the injuries sustained in the death of Freddie Gray. But you also got prosecutors in the mayor's office or, or the mayor's office saying, let's not treat these rioters like criminals this Let's not make this worse. Let's try to create some healing and have an opportunity where we don't want to see this city destroyed, but we're not going to make this worse by going out and, and um attacking children. And I think that was a very important moment. We didn't see that in other communities. We haven't seen that. And the argument there is because you don't have people of color and power who look at the people who are across the divide and recognize them by themselves and also their constituents who they have a responsibility to because they help put them in
0: office. Indeed, we are looking at the marginalization of black Americans' myth or reality. On the phone, live is uh, Dr. Wu Williams, Professor of History. Uh, Professor Williams, ever since President Barack Obama was elected, we hear on the political right and some of the current Republican presidential candidates are saying we need to take our country back. What exactly are they speaking of? Back from, back from what? Back from whom? And they are, and they need their freedom. What are they talking about?
1: Well, it, it's, a, it's one of these uh, moments again, Garnett, where we can say, if we deconstruct that language and we ask them the same question that you just asked, what do you mean from what? Uh, we're only left with the conclusion that they're talking about uh, African-Americans, they're talking about gays, they're talking about uh, Jews, they're talking about the marginalized people who they believe don't represent and are not the caretakers of the American um, dream as they foresee it. The problem with that, again, um, is that it is a clear manifestation of white privilege and a desire of these people who speak in those terms to control, to ultimately define what American democracy is, and who gets to define what it is, and when or when when, or when we are not meeting its, its dictates principles. It's the same thing that we saw in the 1960s with people like Governor Oral Faubus in Arkansas, who denies the access of the Little Rock Nine to Central High School. It is Governor Jay Lindsey Allman and, and uh Virginia closing the Virginia public schools rather than seeing them integrated and when you hear politicians today talk about that they sound like those southern fire ears They are these,
0: like these race racist talks
1: they're, they're absolutely they they're racially fueled and they're code in the same way that when people talk about crime um they're really sort black crime they're talking about mm-hmm. it, it's racialized
2: mm-hmm. so it's
1: absolutely racist at its core it is driven and fueled by uh uh racial prejudice our inability to talk about that or to hold accountable politicians who engage in that degree of rhetoric is problematic because really they need to be called on that and very few people want to have that conversation but when you say take back our country you're right from whom? and if you mean Barack Obama um, or you know are you then siding with Dylan Roof who is making that argument when you can lower the American flag in Charleston South Carolina but you can't lower the Confederate flag Mm -hmm ultimately what are you saying about american citizenship i would argue by virtue of that even though nikki haley is now saying that she wants to and they want to push through legislation that will address that that literally african americans only um, half citizens in south carolina later, the south carolina confederate flag can't be lowered in mm-hmm. the same with the american flag will mm-hmm. that sends a clear message that's the microaggression it says you it's separate but equal
0: Yes, belatedly, and uh news this morning that a woman was arrested down there in Colombia because uh she thought that the flag wasn't coming down fast enough, so she went on a pole, on the pole in the the, the state house and took it down and she came down into the harm the arms of police officers who arrested her for taking it down and um mm-hmm. yeah, the tea party uh, which uh according to them, it means taxed enough already. They came into being just about the time when President Obama was elected for the first time. What do you think are the motives of this group of people? A wing, far-right people of the Republican Party.
1: If, we're being, if, we, if we evaluate them not on what they say, but on what they do, it's clear that there is an element to the Tea Party that is driven and fueled by an opposition to Obama based on the color of his skin. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that um, there's a great book by Kate Zernike, Boiling Mad, on the history of the Tea Party. She, She refuses to say that they are, in fact, racist. I mean, she tries to locate their origins in other places. But ultimately, if you read the book, you're driven to the conclusion by the evidence that she presents that race factors heavily into how they see themselves. When you look at the, the, the other issues they associate them, themselves with, the birther movement, the mm-hmm. idea that Obama's not a citizen and they want to see his birth certificate, mm-hmm. ridiculous. Yeah. Um, that's a way of saying, you're not an American, you're not one of us. So uh, When you look at the, um, uh, the way that they have talked about, again, uh, taxed enough, but why they're concerned about those taxes, because they fear that that money, or they believe that money's going to support lazy and shiftless poor people, which, again, is code for black
0: people. Indeed, but the taxes... The the taxes have been lower, the lowest in 50 years, federal taxes, since the president came into office. So that is a... I'm not sure what they're talking about, if they're talking about tax enough already, because federal taxes have been its lowest since 50 years. Well,
1: but the the problem, Garnett, is that they're not not interested in the facts. There was no complaint Mm -hmm. when... Um, the government was taxing everyone uh, under the previous administration to support two unpopular wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And yet, when Obama came in, and we had things like Obamacare, um, the you know the Affordable Healthcare Act that those the critics call it Obamacare.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: again, no recognition that ultimately these are things that will help Americans here in the United States, those that are suffering up here in the United States. And again, I think that points to very clearly the, the racial element of the Tea Party, of Obama's critics, mm-hmm. that, again, only, that we have to be um, strong enough and conscious enough to call out when we see it.
0: Indeed. And uh, since the president uh, came to office, it seems to me there have been many more racially charged killings, murders by white police officers and white men alike than any other period in recent history. Uh, am I right or wrong? You know, Garnett, I, I think in
1: recent—here's pro- the problem. Robert Chase had a great piece in the uh, CNN this week, and, and I actually talked about this uh, in a piece uh, that I wrote in the Freddie Gray case. I'm not sure that we're necessarily seeing more cases. I mm-hmm. just think that people now have the tools necessary to make those cases known. For years, African Americans talked about polices and occupying armies. For years, African Americans mm-hmm. complained about— a policing in this country about police brutality. Lately, technology has made it possible. We've seen this in the last two years for us to capture this, for us to share in real time via vehicles like Twitter, um, and Instagram, uh, incidents of police brutality. And that ability to document and to share is ultimately what's helped to produce this historical moment. So it's not necessarily that I think that there are more incidents. We can go back a couple of years and look at the killing of Sean Bell, shot fifty times by police or Amado Diallo, Mm -hmm. or um, in Connecticut, um, uh, Malik Jones. I mean, you know, literally across the board in any state of the union. But recently, because of technology, because of our ability to share, because a lot of these incidents are caught on video, on cell phone camera. Mm -hmm. We Remember the Rodney King case? And that was unique because a neighbor, it happened to catch these four police officers beating Rodney King, which led to the L.A. riots. Mm-hmm. Well, now everyone has uh, on their their camera phone. We saw this with Eric Garner last summer in New York City yeah. with Michael Brown. Um, the access to that technology has, mm-hmm. in some sense, empowered everyone to document mm-hmm. this. And now we can see, and now people can't deny, before the, the, the argument was, well, these are the fanciful notions of you know black folks exaggerate, or this isn't really happening, or, you know. Now we see it, and it's inescapable. South Carolina shooting. Of not the of the the church shooting, but the one of the police officer who killed that man. Mm-hmm. Where he literally throws a taser down. Mm-hmm. We talked about that in the African American community: the throwdown, the planting mm-hmm. of evidence. We talked about things like the rough ride, which Freddie Gray got, where police would you know take a suspect and in order to uh, punish them before they got to jail, take them on a rough ride or beat them. These are things that we've always talked about in this community. We could never prove. Here's the proof.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, and. uh Uh, Black people in general are at the bottom of the pyramid in the United States. No doubt about it. What do you think needs to be done to rise these people above and to get to the top like everybody else? You you, you would hope, and I think this
1: is where we um, unfortunately have have deceived ourselves. You would hope that it would be one of these moments where Um, It was electoral politics, in the same way that people thought that the 13th Amendment, just simply abolishing slavery, would be enough. But I think the Reverend Dr. King spoke most poignantly to this in his final book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community, which was published in 1967, where King basically admitted that during the Civil Rights Movement they'd made a grievous error. Because what they had done is predicated this idea that what African-Americans needed was absolute equality before the law and and access and opportunity. But King writes in that book that what they discovered is, what good is it to have the right to eat in a restaurant if you can't afford anything on the menu? Civil rights without economic justice are dead rights. What good is it to have the right to go to college if you can't afford tuition? What good is it to have a system of public education in this country if you didn't have money being diverted to support charter schools over public education. I mean, these are the moments where literally what King was saying is we've got to back up our rhetoric of equality with resources that ultimately ensure that every every American has an opportunity for a standard of living that allows them to be comfortable and self-actualized. The irony of Dylan Roof is that the very things that he was complaining about are the same things that people of color deal with. But rather than looking at this from the standpoint of this is what we share as poor people who are becoming increasingly marginalized in American society because of the gap between the haves and the have not, he scapegoats African Americans, he scapegoats people of color and says, they're the reason that I don't have what I'm entitled to. King meant to lance that in his final campaign, that campaign, the poor people's campaign. That was the intent to bring people of all races to Washington, D.C., and to help them see that our our connectivity across issues of poverty and mm-hmm. inequality. Now, having said that, as long as this perception exists, you're going to see people like Dylan Roof, and you're going to see, quite frankly, politicians, mm-hmm. um, judges, those in power, continually trying to preserve that power, and that means preserving white supremacy.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Dr. Williams, uh, thanks for being on the program. Uh, thanks again for your time, and uh, we'll talk.
1: Thanks again, Garnett. Take care.
0: Uh, thanks again. You have been listening to a conversation with Dr. Yohoro Williams, Distinguished University Chair and the Professor of History and Founding Director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas, St. Paul, Minnesota. We spoke on the marginalization of Black Americans' myth or reality. You're in touch with WPKN. The show is "What's Your Point?" aired fortnightly at this time between nine and ten a.m. Eastern. So, I'm going to talk a little about um, Patrice Lumumba, the first Prime Minister of the Congo Zaïre. It's now called the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and uh, they gained independence on June. Thirty, They gained their independence on June 30, 1960. And the excerpt of what he said, um, it says here, Men and Women of the Congo, Victorious Fighters for Independence. Today, victorious, I greet you in the name of the Congolese government. All of you, my friends, who have fought tirelessly at our sides, I ask you to make this June 30, 1960 an illustrious date that you will keep indelibly engraved in your hearts, a date of significance of which you will teach to your children so that they will make known to their sons and to their grandchildren the glorious history of our fight for liberty. For this independence of the Congo, even as it is celebrated today with Belgium, a friendly country with whom we deal as equal to equal. No Congolese worthy of the name will ever be able to forget that it was by fighting that it was it has been won. A day to day fight, an ardent and idealistic fight, a fight in which we were spared neither privation nor suffering, for which. We gave our strength and our blood. Part of the speech by first prime minister of the Democratic, no, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Then was uh, the Congo. Uh, Patrice Lumumba. Uh, the second uh, conversation with uh, Professor Uhuru Williams uh, speaks of Marcus Gavi's impact on Africa and the diaspora. Doctor. Buhuru Williams has appeared on What's Your Point before, so he is no stranger to the show. Uh, Professor Williams, welcome once more to What's Your Point.
1: Good morning, Garnet. How are you this morning?
0: I'm fine. And you?
1: I'm good, thank you.
0: Great, great. Uh, if you should uh describe Marcus Garvey in one word, what would that be?
1: Innovative. And I, I choose that word primarily because... We often don't talk about political leaders or individuals who um, forwarded a political ideology as being innovators, but Garvey was both innovative and visionary. He was someone who recognized, in, the, in the historical moment in which he lived, both opportunity in the travails of people of African descent, both in the United States and abroad, and used that as an opportunity moment really to forward an ideology that would create economic uh, self-sufficiency, a political independence um and social social esteem for for people of color and so in that sense i've always viewed him as an innovator i think even today when we look at some of the ideas that marcus garvey forwarded um in the the 1920s certainly they have currency today and that speaks to the long-term power of his vision
0: indeed and uh who was marcus garvey
1: Marcus Garvey was a Jamaican-born black nationalist and pan-Africanist. He was born in St. Anne's Bay, Jamaica in 1887, August 17th. We just celebrated his birthday. Mm -hmm. And he really rose to prominence in um, the United States uh, in the late 19-teens, early 1920s, as the leader of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, which was an organization committed to promoting uh, black nationalism and pan-Africanism across the globe. Garvey was unique among civil rights leaders at the time because he had a global perspective. While you had other organizations that were looking squarely at problems here in the United States, for example, the NAACP, Mm -hmm. the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, looking at segregation in the United States and how to combat it, Garvey was saying, when you look at people of color, people of African descent across the globe, there's certain things that they share in common, certain characteristics that they have in common. For example, he offered an analysis, uh, analysis, Africa. He said in Africa, what people suffered from was economic exploitation, alien political um, domination, that is, having foreign European powers in there, you know, uh, running the governments of, of uh, the autonomous African people that should have been run by the peoples of Africa. And you had what he called outright slavery. He said in the United States, you had similar problems uh, segregation, um, economic exploitation, and Jim Crow justice. And he said in Latin America and the Caribbean, you had, again, very similar problems. Peonage, economic exploitation, and alien political domination. He said because of that, people of African descent worldwide had more in common. They belonged to an African diaspora, and they should unite together and think about how they might politically, socially, and economically combat white supremacy. That, again, made him a visionary, and it was unique for its time. And it inspired many groups going forward, including uh, the Moore-Science Temple, uh, the Nation of Islam, and, and great leaders like uh, Malcolm
0: X. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think Marcus Garwood would say, given the number of questionable killings of blacks here in the United States, or when he was agitating for repatriation during his time?
1: Part of what Barbie's argument was, is that, and, th- and this created some controversy uh, with other civil rights leaders, Garvey believed that the best opportunity for African Americans, the best opportunity for people of African descent, was to return to an African ancestral homeland. And he wasn't just saying this out of a sense of of nostalgia, but out of the belief that the continent of Africa was rich with resources, and that if black people could reclaim the continent, um, retake access to those resources, build a strong nation, they would be in a position to contest. with European powers, and to fight for the rights of people of, uh, people of African descent across the globe, um, irrespective of, of political boundaries, political borders. But one of the things that Garvey talked about is that wherever Englishmen went anywhere in the world, the citizens of England, they were protected by a strong empire. He wanted to build the same kind of empire for people of African descent on the continent of Africa, with the belief that wherever African Americans, wherever people of African descent had their rights um, insulted, there would be this great, mighty nation that could stand up and contest for them and fight for their, for their liberties. And so in that sense, Garvey, um, you know, again, was forwarding an ideology that was, was very different than what you were getting from other civil rights leaders at the time, people like Chandler Owen and A. Philip Randolph, mm-hmm. um, and their, their publication, The Messenger W.E.B. Du Bois and, mm-hmm. and uh, the NAACP. Having said that, and I want to be very clear, one of the things that gets Garvey into a little bit of trouble is that he's willing to even meet with the Ku Klux Klan yeah. to talk about dividing mm-hmm. up, mm-hmm. Um, the world, and mm-hmm. that makes you know lead some of his critics to think, you know, that they're dealing with someone who was um, not altogether there. But yeah. if he was in fact, Garvey had a real rationale behind that, and mm-hmm. that was the belief that if you could convince white supremacists to give up power in this way, and and actually give African Americans or provide people of African descent the power to retake the continent of Africa they would thrive
0: and be able to contest for full equality so okay as we talk about the, the, the his meeting with the uh ku Klan uh, members it, it's because he was against miscegenation that's why he met with them because he thought that to for uh, for people for the mic, for the races to mix we would have suicide committed uh racial suicide isn't that the case
1: it was part of it, and, and part of it was also Garvey's firm belief that the things that, uh, uh, I'll put it this way, he was a, a firm believer in many of the ideas that were put forward by Booker T. Washington, Booker mm-hmm. T. Washington. Booker T. Washington really was a realist. and He was someone who said, let's look at our opportunity moments, and let's exploit those moments. Let's worry less. Um, he famously wrote in his uh, Atlanta Compromise speech that um, the opportunity to own or make a dollar was more important than the opportunity to just spend a dollar in the theater. Rather than worrying about, at the turn of the century, with so much racism and, and lynching and violence toward uh, people of African descent, rather than worry about things like miscegenation and, and, and those kind of concerns and intermarriage, what Marcus Garvey was saying is that we need to worry about those basic things. Starting businesses, uh, creating economic opportunity for ourselves, building strong um, wells of capital, that will allow us to contest and and defend ourselves. Those were his primary concerns. Mm -hmm. So he was willing to say, um, and and share with the Ku Klux Klan this idea that every nation should strive to preserve its own purity, because it simply made it easier uh, for uh, those peoples then to identify and to marshal resources and to work collectively for their own good. Um, There's a historian named John Hyman who calls the 20s the tribal 20s. And you see this not just uh, with people like Marcus Garvey, but you see it Um, in other communities and other groups as well, with people kind of looking inward. And here was Garvey in the 1920s and meeting with the Klan and and downplaying miscegenation, saying, yes, um, I believe miscegenation creates problems, but again, uh, many of those problems are things that we shouldn't uh, allow to divert our attention away from what our primary concern would be. And if it was Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that would be food, shelter, employment for our people." And ensuring that we have a mighty homeland that can speak and fight for us if necessary.
0: Yeah, but, but at the same time, though, he um, did, uh, he was against miscegenation, though. He wanted the, the white people to stay by themselves in terms of uh, breeding and um, so forth. He didn't want black people to mingle with, with um, white people, so to speak, wouldn't you say?
1: Yes. I mean, he, and he also said that in the context of, um, but when we think about that period, the period from 1915 to 1925, um, the summer of 1919 is called the Red Summer of 1919 because of all the attacks against African Americans, double-digit lynching. Most of the rationale, even though um, Ida B. Wells and, and Booker T. Washington, the Institute, even the NAACP did studies that proved that far and away, um, although sexual violence against white women was not the reason for these race riots, that was one of the, the principal uh, reasons that lynch mobs would use, that rioters would use, in order to justify their actions. So here's Garvey, again, not saying that he didn't say, because he did, he was against miscegenation, but there was also a political element to that where he was saying, look, this is one way where we, we can be sure, and articulating this as part of our political philosophy, that this won't be used by our critics, people like Thomas Nelson Page, or even the President of the United States at that time, um, slightly before Garvey's time, but uh, 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 um, Theodore Roosevelt, who articulated um, these types of ideas, that the best defense for African Americans was in, the best defense for people of African uh, African descent was in building a strong community amongst themselves. And miscegenation or anything that weakened that, that weakened the blood, for him would have been something that they should not pursue.
0: Uh, Speaking with uh, Dr. Uhuru Williams, Professor of History. Uh, professor Williams is live on the telephone. We're speaking about Marcus Garvey's impact on Africa and the diaspora. And uh, let's get back a little to uh, what what Garvey would think about today in terms of the killings and so forth, seeing that he was one for repatriation. Just add a little bit on that in terms of what do you think you'd be saying to black people after so many years about repatriation? Africa is a place you should be. Well, I I think
1: especially given our contemporary moment, you can see a lot of the, um, you know, the the genius of Marcus Garvey in the sense that what he said is that as long as you had people of African descent in in the United States, in a nation where you have rampant racism, where the structures of power are dominated by uh, European Americans, by white Americans, where African Americans occupy uh, the lowest rungs of society you're always gonna have these types of problems. You're always gonna have problems in terms of um, employment. You're always gonna have problems in terms of housing. You're always gonna have problems in terms of Jim Crow justice and policing. If we look at America today, a lot of those issues that Garvey talked about are certainly still with us. And certainly in the last four or five years, going back to Trayvon Martin, coming up through uh, Sandra Bland and Raynette Turner more recently, um, certainly uh, Walter Scott and Freddie Gray and all the other individuals who were killed in police custody. This is one of those moments where one looks back and says, was Garvey correct in stating that America is beyond hope for people of color to be able to live with a sense of of true security? And again, I think you hear that coming out of movements like Black Lives Matter, and you hear that from certain segments of the African-American community where people are saying, if we can't be sure that our young people are secure in their persons on the street um, and dealing with lawful authorities, even when they're doing nothing wrong, Maybe there was something to Garvey's argument about, A, building a uh, 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 literally a black army that would defend um, African-Americans' lives, but then also moving to a space where black people would be able to feel um, more secure because the reins of government would be uh, occupied by people of African descent, the police would be people of African descent, and what blacks could expect was the same courtesy, uh, the same fair treatment, um, the same understanding that white Americans enjoy in a nation where the reins of power and the apparatus of policing are controlled by whites.
0: And uh, given Garvey's stance on repatriation, what do you think he would say on the election of United States' first black president, Barack Obama?
1: You know, I think it's interesting because I think Marcus Garvey likely would have been a critic of Barack Obama in the same way that he was a critic of uh, W.E.B. Du Bois Mm and the NAACP. And I think he would have been a critic of Obama in a sense that he would have recognized inherently the problem of an African-American president supposedly both or being in a conundrum of of trying to represent the interest of a nation as a whole and the interest of 12, 13 percent of the population, which carries the stigma of slavery and all of the the, um, modern contrivances that that keep African-Americans at the lowest rungs of society. And what he would have argued was exactly what we've seen, that people use the fact that you have an African-American president, a Latina on the United States Supreme Court, a former African-American attorney general, as pretext to suggest that we are, and this language became very popular a couple years ago, post-racial, when in fact the problems are probably far worse today than they were 10 years ago with those people occupying those positions of power. What we got were the trappings of success, that is... um, uh, black faces in high places without real institutional structural change that would result in true opportunity for the vast majority of African Americans. And for that reason, I think Garvey would have recognized that and would have been somebody who would have been highly critical both of the campaign and of many of Obama's policies, which some could argue justifiably have exacerbated, uh, problems of, of, uh, wealth inequality, uh, in, uh, communities of color which have not really addressed uh, the the rampant double-digit uh, unemployment that we see in the African-American community um, that haven't really dealt with the issue of, of uh, violence against African-Americans by the police. Uh, so w- when you're looking at it in that context, I think, again, Garvey would have been someone who would have been um, reticent about the meaning or the symbolism of a black president without real structural change.
0: Mm-hmm. Indeed. Uh, When Garvey came to Harlem, New York City, at first, for a brief period, he enjoyed the support of black activists and intellectuals of the day. Uh, Later, A. Philip Randolph and uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and others who earlier supported him thought his program for black black people and advancement of black people was unsound. Were those leaders jealous or did uh, they not understand Garvey?
1: It's a little bit of both, Garnet. I mean, such a great question, because it's one of those questions that, you know, we look at our own contemporary moment again, and we can see shades of that um, in, in the uh, jockeying for power and position and influence among leaders today. Part of it was uh, a degree of, of professional jealousy, the, the feeling that Garvey was taking away um, a, a large portion of the audience that would have been better suited in the minds of his critics supporting their in programs. Uh, part of it legitimately, um, when you look at the critique that's offered, because, again, you know, A. Philip Randolph and W.E.B. Du Bois, at least in the beginning, there was some understanding. I think all of these individuals, to a certain extent, understood that they were working towards similar goals. Um, over time, there a, a real consensual begins to develop as they're uh, better, more exposed to each other's programs. But W.E.B. Du Bois eventually will embrace pan-Africanism, which is what Garvey was talking about. So it's not like... Um, their ideas were so foreign, but it was partly the petty jealousies, partly the fact that, again, um, different styles. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois didn't appreciate the pomp uh, of, of Marcus Garvey, um, certainly didn't appreciate the idea of repatri- repatriation, believed that um, African-Americans that fought for and deserved the right to contest for full citizenship here in the United States. Felt that this talk about going back to Africa was something that, you know, belonged to a bygone era and that African-Americans in particular should focus on contesting for full equality in the United States, but by virtue of the fact that they had the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments to do so, and that that's where they should channel their energy. So again, they're competing. All of these organizations, all of these individuals, um, black men and women from Lena Gordon uh, to, you know, Ella Baker, uh, A. Philip Randolph, Marcus, they're competing for the hearts and minds of black America. And that can be, that, became bitter at various times because they were also com- uh, competing for financial support and in the case of, uh, you know, b- uh, both Garvey and the NAACP for support of white benefactors um, in the hopes that there would have been whites who would have been sympathetic to the idea of repatriation and would have given money in order to see that through, and there would have been whites who have been sympathetic to the cause of the NAACP and supporting integration would have given money to support that. So they're competing in all those different arenas.
0: And it should be noted, too, that uh, W.E.B. Du Bois went to Ghana on the uh, invitation of President uh, Kwame Nkrumah, where he died. And there's a house there and a monument for him, just, you know, to let uh, the listeners know that. Okay, and uh, you're listening to WPK, and it's uh, What's Your Point? Speaking with uh, Dr. Yuhuru Williams, a professor of history. Uh, professor Williams is live on the phone. and that We are talking about Marcus Garvey's impact on Africa and the diaspora. And uh, uh, Professor Williams, uh, Garvey called himself the provisional president of Africa, a continent in which he had never visited. Wasn't it a bit presumptuous on the part of Garvey to give himself such a title? And that's one of the things that Randolph and Du Bois were looking at him as a stock of black people what your what your take on that
1: yeah, absolutely it what you, you know the 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 irony and you, you see it today to a certain extent um, is that you had here was Garvey with this very sophisticated political analysis of the problems in Africa um, and, and being able to identify what colonialism was and, and make the case that you know um, African Americans should, should challenge colonialism But approaching Africa with a very colonial mentality, the idea that, you know, um, a Jamaican-born black nationalist who had lived in the United States and in Jamaica was going to come to Africa and take over um, and be able to leave. You know, it was the same in some sense. This was one of the critiques of Garvey. It was the same colonial mentality. It was the same um, mindset. Um, of the colonizers, that you would go to Africa and that there were, you know, people there who were not capable of uh, on their own, of running their own country or marshalling their own resources. So in that sense, yes, there was um, for Garvey's critics a kind of lack of sophistication. Roy Wilkins of the NAACP was a a journalist, um, and and one of the people who was an early critic of of Marcus Garvey pointed that out, among others. Um, There was also this sense, you know, among Garveyites that What Garvey, in in a defense, I should say, uh, for Garvey, among Garveyites, that went something like this. By Garvey declaring himself the provisional leader of the continent of Africa, what he was doing was staking a claim in the same way that any um, colonial power stakes a claim in hopes of creating autonomous regions for people of African descent on the continent in order to uh, decide for themselves what the economic, social, and political future of the continent would be. In other words, at the point in which Garvey's doing that, Africa had already been colonized by European powers. Garvey at least wanted to reclaim it, and then, in, upon liberating the continent, open it up for the process of autonomous political organizing that would have empowered uh, both those who repatriated and those who were already there. And that's a far more nuanced and sympathetic view of, of the Garvey's you know, comments about being the provisional leader of Africa.
0: Uh huh. In the nineteen fifties, a young man from the then Gold Coast in Africa, later named Ghana, Kwame Nkrumah, came to the United States to study, and um, he joined the UNIA when he came. Garvey already left the country, and he became a member. He read uh, Garvey's book, Philosophy and Opinions of Marcus Garvey, and uh, he went back to Ghana and became that nation's first prime minister, and then first president. It was Gold Coast. He changed it to, to Ghana. Um, then, after that, he agitated for independence from Britain, and they got it. Later, there was what was called the the independence explosion across uh, sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, this was a situation where it seems if like Garvey had an impact there. Would you say?
1: Um, you're an astute uh Reader, of history, going uh, Absolutely, I, I think.
0: In fact, you are. Sorry, sorry. Could you, so you please well. repeat what is? No, I didn't hear you at first. What did you say? I, I was just saying
1: you're, you're a very
0: astute um, student of history.
1: Not only would I agree with you, I think you articulated it so well. I could only. The only thing that I would add is that this is one of the dimensions of Garvey that's often overlooked. That years later, by the time we look at the, those African independence movements and. A lot of times, when you read um, accounts of the civil rights and black power movements in the United States, they'll talk about the influence of people like Kwame Nkrumah and Patrice Lumumba mm-hmm. on African-American freedom fighters here in the United States, like Kathleen Cleaver and Stokely Carmichael and Malcolm X. What we often don't do is do the deep uh, process of historical recovery, where we see that a lot of those readers were influenced by Marcus Garvey. By the ideology of Marcus Garvey, that they read his speeches, that they read his works, that they had access to the um, uh, Universal Negro Improvement Association's newspapers and archives, that Amy Jackson Garvey kept that organization gar- going, mm-hmm. that Garvey's fingerprints extended well beyond um, his deportation here in the United States, and he made, he remained a relevant um, uh, figure in dialogues about colonialism, post-colonialism. Uh, dealing with structural inequalities and that, you know, you've got, you know, years later looking at people like Frantz Fanon, who wrote the book The Wretched to the Earth, um, Marcus Garvey and uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and, and all these other phenomenal thinkers contributed to and helped to lay the groundwork for the philosophical underpinnings of both the civil rights and black power movements in the United States but also anti-colonial struggles abroad. They were part of that, that conversation, um, and they deserve credit mm-hmm. for their contributions, and Garvey is, again, one of those people that's often overlooked.
0: Indeed. And uh, without Nkrumah coming here, studying and uh, read about Garvey, and going back, and which caused the explosion, independence explosion, do you think that would have occurred without that input from Garvey? I I think it may have.
1: I don't know that Nkrumah would have developed the unique brand of, of politics and that he did without the influence of Garvey. I think you see Garvey, again, his fingerprint um, in a lot of that and in, in, in much of Nkrumah's political ideology. The idea that Nkrumah recognizes that he's not just building um, a nation in Ghana. It's not just about nation building in Ghana. It's about being a beacon of hope and a resource to people of African descent across the globe. That he recognized that what was happening in Ghana was going to have ripples across the continent of Africa, across the globe, that it was going to be this place where um, people like the W.E.B. Du Bois and proponents of pan-Africanism could come and be restored and learn and contribute. And, and so in that sense, yeah, again, I think it is Garvey's influence that you see very plainly in that, um, that, that helped Nkrumah fashion his political ideology. And again, not just Nkrumah alone. We, we think about it in this, this context. When... By 1963, when Martin Luther King is giving his I Have a Dream speech at the March on Washington, Mm -hmm. one of the things that he's telling reporters, one of the things he's saying consistently is that you have the nation uh, on the continent of Africa moving with, as he says, I'm quoting him, jet-like speed toward independence, Mm -hmm. while in the United States you had uh, African Americans still suffering under the yoke of segregation and uh, political inequality and economic exploitation, so on and so forth. So even there, you've got um, the, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, you've got the, the mainstream civil rights movement looking abroad, taking inspiration from this explosion of political independence that's taking place on the continent of Africa, and yet not completing the arc and recognizing that, again, a lot of that began with the man from St. Anne's Bay, Jamaica, uh, Marcus Garvey.
0: Yes, and uh, I remember when Patricia Lumumba was uh, assassinated in the Congo there, then, Zaire, he was agitating to the United Nations and other places to help, help the continent. He was so much of a pan-Africanist. Uh, uh, I'm talking about Nkrumah here.
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. Nkrumah, um, Lumumba, I, I think, um, and, and we often forget, uh, you, Peniel Joseph talks about this in his uh, his phenomenal book, Waiting Till the Midnight Hour. When Fidel Castro came to the United States for the first time, he wanted to meet with Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. Um it's not, people abroad were very much aware of what was happening in Harlem, very much aware of, of, of black radical circles, um, of individuals who had adopted a political philosophy that would have supported um, international uh, connections with those who were similarly situated. The Black Panther Party, much later on, uh, would, would do something very similar. But again, if you look at the DNA of that, um, a lot of that goes back to Marcus Garvey. And, you know, the, the leaders themselves at the time were not afraid to talk about Garvey's influence. If you look at the political education classes of the Black Panther Party, they're reading the speeches of Marcus Garvey. If you pick up the Black Panther newspaper, you'll find articles about Marcus Garvey. The political education classes, they, they're they they're talking about and engaging with the importance and legacy of Marcus Garvey, not just Mao X and Frantz Fanon and, and, and um, Fidel Castro, but Garvey himself. So again, Garvey cast a long shadow. Um, in his book, The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual, Carol Cruz offers a blistering critique of Garvey, and yet at the same time privileges Garvey as one of these individuals who, again, helped to set the groundwork for um, the modern conversation about black power. Uh, and so in that sense, and, and even today, um, if we go back... Uh, you know, this movie just came out straight out of Compton on, mm-hmm. on uh, the, the N.W.A. group. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they were contemporaries of Public Enemy. Public Enemy, uh, the hip-hop group in the 1980s, 1989. Talking about Marcus Garvey. Um, Again, against the backdrop of police brutality and, and double-digit unemployment and uh, lack of housing in New York, and they're engaging Marcus Garvey in their lyrics and putting reading lists on their record, uh, on their liner notes to their album. Which included the work of Marcus Garvey. To me, that all of that points to the long shadow, um, the long positive trajectory of Garveyism, of Garveyites, of Garvey's influence. Malcolm X's parents were Garveyites. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it's one of these things that if we if we do the uh, the arithmetic and you and you look at it, you start to add it up. You get to see all the places in which Garvey had a tremendous influence, and why today some would argue that perhaps we need to do a critical reading of Garvey, again, not necessarily because we want to resurrect um, the idea of repatriation, but in the context of looking at people like Ta-Nehisi Coates that have talked about reparation, Mm -hmm. in the context of looking at a national Black Lives Matter movement, are there kernels in Garvey's philosophy that might help us in this moment, which was very similar to his own, that we may be overlooking? Because Garvey can be a resource for us, a light for us moving forward.
0: Uh, What's the the most important thing that black people should learn about Garvey and what he stood for, especially black leaders today in the world? Three things. Number one, to be
1: global in our consciousness. To recognize that our problems transcend borders. It's something that uh, Huey P. Newton of the Black Panther Party talked about intercommunalism, which in, in some sense was a Um, uh, kind of a a take-off on Garvey's uh, pan-Africanism and this idea of of just being globally conscious, recognizing that the forces that we fight against, whether they be corporate education reform or or, um, guns and and violence in our communities or the proliferation of drugs, extend across boundaries. And we have more in common with those people who are similarly situated. We should familiarize ourselves with their struggles. We should, as much as possible, try to recognize the ways in which we might work collectively um, Toward solutions that recognize our commonalities in those areas. I think the second thing that we take away from Garvey is this idea that um, we look to ourselves for solutions in our community. And it may sound a bit trite, but one of the things that Garvey would have argued is that it's not simply about electing black officials. It's about creating opportunities for black businesses. It's about ensuring uh, pathways to education that will empower young people with the knowledge of self that they'll come back and serve the community that they were born and raised in. That they don't leave it and go elsewhere and take that to themselves elsewhere, but they bring it back and they create networks that help to build up the next generation. So I think it's that piece. I think the third thing that we take from Garvey that I think is, is, is extremely important focuses on the issue of um, black nationalism, and and not in the sense that people will want to read it that you're saying that somehow African Americans or or people of African descent should see themselves as a separate and distinct nation in the way that Garvey talked about it. But I think, in in the modern context, our ability as a people to draw self-esteem and a sense of self-worth, particularly when there's so much negativity in the press, so much negativity uh, focused on us, about our history and our culture in a way that empowers young people to deal with the obstacles and challenges that they face um, in the modern world. Uh, when I was a young person growing up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, John Davidson uh, and the ABC Cultural Arts Center had a program called The African Guide, and we studied Marcus Garth, and We studied um, uh, the works of, of W.E.B. Du Bois and Pan-Africanism. Um, it didn't make me any less Uh, I'm sorry, it made me much more aware of the importance of history and culture and that I came from a great people. And I think that's served me well in my my career. I think more young people need that. So I think those three pieces are those things that we could take away from Garvey today that could certainly speak to our community right now. Uh,
0: Seeing that um, repatriation may not be um, real or a reality in today's 2015, what what do you think Garvey would be saying today were he alive? To say, okay, what do we do to coexist white and black in this country or in the diaspora, so to speak?
1: I actually, I believe that Garvey would still be a strong proponent of repatriation. I believe that when we talk about coexistence, this was, you know, again, one of the things that, that Garvey um, mocked uh, his contemporaries for, this this false belief that somehow Um, you could create, or you were ever going to get to a point. And and maybe this contemporary moment for some bears his his thinking out. Because here we are in 2015, and we've experienced over the last five years, I mean, it it actually feels like a war against uh, black and brown uh, bodies on the streets of the United States. Uh, Every weekend there's another case from San Diego to Cleveland to... Baltimore, to South Carolina, Charleston. So maybe when Garvey made the argument that it's a fool's paradise to believe that somehow we'll ever reach a point where as a nation blacks will be viewed as equals and where they will not be struggling against um, the kind of of violence and and, uh, uh, negativity that we see even in our contemporary moment, perhaps he was right having said that. I think that there are many 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 people who believe that we can't give up the prospect that it is our right to fight for that because we helped to build this nation that we helped to create the success people of African descent have been central uh, to the growth and development of the United States and as W.E.B. Du Bois argued um, why should we walk away from something that in many ways our blood and labor helped to build we owe it not only to ourselves but we owe it to the our larger um, sense of social justice uh, and a desire to uh, leave for the, you know leave the, the, the planet in a better place than it was when we inherited it, the right to stand and fight for democracy, to stand and fight for justice, to stand and fight for equality, to stand and fight for those principles which the founders articulated, but the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King argued left a blank check because they've never really been realized here in the United States. And that dilemma is really no different than the dilemma that Marcus Garvey and W.E.B. Du Bois and others uh, faced in the 1920s. Um, But again, I think Garvey himself would would still make the case that our best hope uh, lay in uh, a space outside the United States, an an African homeland, uh, where we could build um, political power and economic power. uh, And he would not necessarily be interested in a conversation about how to create uh, harmony
0: here in the United States. It was It was possible. Okay. Uh, thank you very much.
1: Always good talking to you, Garnet.
0: Thank you for having me. And uh, thanks for being on. Take care. I was just speaking with Dr. Yohoro Williams. He is Distinguished University Chair and Professor of History and Founding Director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. We spoke on the marginalization of black Americans, whether it's a myth or reality. And uh, the conversation we just heard of Marcos Garvey's impact on Africa and the diaspora. I am Garnet Anker.